Good morning and welcome to Rising. Thank you for joining us on this Tuesday morning. Good morning, Brianna. Good morning, Robbie. Good morning to viewers. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Let's get right to it. What are we talking about today? Yeah, well, things got kind of testy for Nancy Pelosi yesterday when she was confronted outside of her home by protesters demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. Let's get right into it. Most of your constituents block the sergeant. Stop, stop the genocide. Stop the Holocaust. Democrats want the ceasefire. The Democrats want the ceasefire. Now, in case you didn't catch that, she said, go back to China where your headquarters is. That's just a day after accusing pro-ceasefire protesters of being uh, Putin's puppets. Now, Pelosi isn't the only Hill Democrat in hot water over the mounting humanitarian crisis in Gaza. This weekend, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez pleased neither left nor right when she was asked whether President Biden is supporting a genocide in the Middle East. Do you agree with that word? genocide, that the president's been supporting a genocide, or does that go too far? I think what we are seeing right now throughout the country is that young people are appalled at the violence and the indiscriminate loss of life. We are not just seeing 25,000 people that have died in Gaza. We are seeing the starvation of, of millions of people, the displacement over, of over two million Gazans. We have South Africa that has mounted uh, a court in the ICJ. The ICJ ruled this week that Israel has a grave responsibility to prevent genocide. But they're still, and I think they're still the determining whether it's a genocide. Do you think that they are still is determining given it. that it's still under investigation? I believe that they are, they're still determining it. But in the interim ruling, the fact that they said there's a responsibility to prevent it, the fact that this word is even in play. Meanwhile, dozens of U.S. government employees are set to fast in protest of President Biden's support of Israel this coming Thursday. Now, this comes as a new report in The Washington Post finds that members of Gen Z are expressing their frustrations over the war in Gaza on TikTok and getting the White House's attention. The Post describes left-leaning TikTok activists as an influential political force as the president seeks to win back the approval of younger voters. A new Pew Research survey finds among ages 18 to 29, just 27 percent approve of President Biden's job performance and 71 percent in that category disapprove. Yes, those are terrible numbers, especially for young voters who tend to overwhelmingly support uh, Democratic politicians. Uh, but that isn't that's just the tip of the iceberg here. I think that sometimes when stories are read through the lens of young voters are upset, they're easy to dismiss because young voters don't vote as at high rates as older voters do. And there's a kind of trivialization of what's going on gone here uh, in some in some groups where they say, well, it's just on TikTok, it's just young voters. Right. But I think there's, a, there's some evidence that the TikTok stuff really does bother folks as evidenced by <laughs> the bipartisan interest in frankly banning TikTok that we see in Congress. And yeah. two- Although that, that was going on well before. Well, yes, but it's because they're online that the TikTok audience tends to be much more critical of the establishment policies in a number of different contexts. 
context, including being at times critical of uh, investments in the war in Ukraine. And yes, very, very critical of the uh, siege of Gaza. Uh, but additionally, it's not just young people. Over a thousand uh, black pastors representing thousands and thousands of constituents uh, met uh, with the White House advocating uh, for a ceasefire. The uh, Huffington Post reported that Michigan's top Arab elected leader uh, has never been reached out to uh, by the White House, Representative Abraham Ayash, uh, and he articulated growing frustrations within the uh, Arab and Muslim American communities, particularly in important swing states. And it is increasingly odd, I would say, that you're not getting clearer messaging from the Biden administration and surrogates like AOC, who ultimately performed the role in an election year when they've endorsed Joe Biden, as a surrogate of his campaign as to what to do about that. You see her giving a lot of, I see you, I hear you, I understand, I also agree that Gaza is a humanitarian crisis language. But what does that mean if you're still in lockstep from an electoral and policy perspective with the man who is enabling that course of action? Yeah, and it's not like Joe Biden is a sh some kind of shoe in for re-election where this doesn't really matter. I mean, he's, he's underwater. His poll numbers are terrible nationally and in swing states. Um, perhaps he, he's governing a coalition that is just ungovernable, but whatever the reason is, um, taking, becoming even more unpopular with key demographic support groups, including young people and minorities, um, is going to sink any chance he has. I think with the young people, you're right that they vote in, in less um, compelling percentage numbers but um, but but clearly having young people on your side in terms of mess like door-to-door -door campaigning less so now but in terms of messaging on mm -hmm. social media in terms of um, you know carrying the torch that kind of thing I think they do much more legwork than other groups um, uh, that was obviously very important to Barack Obama's um, successful primary and uh, election uh, way back when, so I, I I do think it's certainly going to hurt him that uh, that it's shaping up this way. Yeah, and she's not exactly in this um, age group. Uh, I'm I'm going to talk about Taylor Swift. You know, she's a little older than the kind of young 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 people age group that we're describing here, but. We covered yesterday how She was invented anxious. in a lab in order to help get Joe <laughs> right. Biden reelected. That's the... Right, and people are really anxious about whether or not she's going to uh, give Biden the endorsement, in part because her endorsement back in 2020 was meaningful. Apparently, her post on Instagram to her 272 million followers back in 2020 led directly to 35,000 voter registration. So there's a lot of power here. So Wild. I do think that the, the kind of conservative anxiety about, um, you know, this is a plot. This is a scam. I mean, she obviously did it on her own accord, uh, you know, four years ago. So that is what it is. But I think there's an interesting question on the other side for the Biden administration, which is, is she going to be willing to stick her neck out again when Biden is so deeply unpopular and while he is seen as the enabler of one of the worst yeah. humanitarian crises we've seen in modern history. If I was her, I would want nothing to do with politics anyway. I would just stay out. <laughs> I don't know why. And 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 truly, maybe this is coming from an old person. It baffles—I know this is correct. It just blows my mind. It baffles me that people care what Taylor Swift thinks about politics, or people will vote for who Taylor Swift wants them to vote for, or, or get registered because she tells them to. I know that's the case. I just can't identify I, I it or, or I, imagine it. I, like, I, I think and it's not specific to Taylor Swift, just celebrities in general. I, I think it's I often, don't care what they think about anything. I think it's often the case that, especially when we're talking about advocacy for issues that are not broadly accepted um, socially, and the, the issue of Palestine. Joe Biden? 
The issue of Palestinian rights is one of those issues that does not get mainstream acceptance in liberal media and the liberal press. Um, it's It's been a, a third rail issue for so long that I do think it is incredibly powerful for people on TikTok who are basically anonymous or very high-profile people to demonstrate that they're willing to, willing to publicly support the interests of Palestinians and call for a ceasefire. I do think it empowers folks who've been told for years that this issue is too complicated, don't weigh in, you might be called anti-Semitic if you have the wrong opinion. And having a really high-profile validator whose ethics and values you respect for other reasons, I think is actually enormously powerful. And Part of why Joe Biden uh, maybe should be concerned, not just about Taylor Swift and what she may or may not do, but about the overwhelming um, direction of the commentary on TikTok. It's just a right-left. Maybe it's just a right-left difference. It always calls to mind those kinds of celebrity PSAs where they all say the same phrase The right-left difference? The right that just decided they're going to stop drinking Budweiser because they hired one influencer to hold a can of beer one time? Because they don't want to be lectured to by celebrities who have nothing okay. to do with and no knowledge of the product. It's consistent with that. Okay. More rising right after this. The killing of three United States troops in Jordan by groups the Pentagon had said were Iran-backed is heightening pressure on the Biden administration to balance their message back to Tehran with the goal of deterring future attacks but not escalating a broader conflict. The attack on the U.S. troops is the first time American service members have been killed in the Middle East since the outbreak of the conflict in Gaza. International Security Spokesperson John Kirby weighed in on the Jordan attack yesterday, saying the Biden administration does not desire another war, but will respond to these attacks. We do not seek another war. We do not seek to escalate. But we will absolutely do what is required to protect ourselves, to continue that mission, and to respond appropriately to these attacks. We will respond. We'll do that on our schedule, in our time. Joining us now to weigh in is retired Lieutenant Colonel and host of the Daniel Davis Deep Dive, Daniel Davis. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. I wonder if first you can help us understand what the constructive difference is between responding, as John Kirby says the United States will do, and escalating in a way that could lead to a broader war? Well, that, I mean, it's semantics. It's it's basically trying to thread the needle and trying to, to you know, be partially pregnant or so, which is really hard to do uh, because, you know, it's, escalation and, and appropriateness is always in the eye of the beholder. Of course, Iran is going to say anything that we do is, is not appropriate because they're claiming, well, it wasn't us. We didn't do it. We don't direct them, et cetera. Whether they did or whether they didn't is, is nearly irrelevant because it matters what the American people think and what the president thinks because he's going to act on what he believes we're supposed to do. Now, it is clear that there is a significant uh pressure on the White House, which is, has been predictable, and I've been saying it, I think, on your show several times over the last several months, that if an American was killed, there would be huge pressure for him to strike Iran at Iranian targets, not just at the militia groups that may have pulled this off, and now that's where we are. Now, the problem is, if if Biden goes in soft again and doesn't do any of these, you know, a big strike, then people are going to call him weak, and it's probably going to encourage more people to do the same. But if he goes in too heavy, then he could literally draw us into a war what, that nobody wants to fight in America and probably nobody even on the Iranian side, but that's where it may end up. 
that's why I think the best policy is probably one of the least pleasant ones, but the best one for U.S., and that is to finally withdraw our troops from these pointless and unnecessary deployments, which ironically, the, the White House was had leaked some information a week ago that they were considering doing this. And now, of course, no one even wants to talk about that. But that's what would eliminate our, our vulnerability and keep any more American troops from getting killed. But I'm sorry, I will say one last thing there. It is absolutely now required that the president does go after and destroy any of these groups that actually carried this attack out. That's non-negotiable. Yes, I saw Senator Rand Paul saying on um, Twitter that perhaps we should reevaluate a policy that stations a few hundred soldiers in dozens of remote areas in dozens of countries, not enough to fight a real war, just enough to be vulnerable targets. Could you speak to, I mean, what is the, from the administration's perspective, what is the purported national security reason for having handfuls of troops stationed in unsafe um, situations across Africa and the Middle East where they could be fired upon by terrorist groups, militia groups, rebel groups, um, like, what are, what are they doing there from, from the U.S. government's perspective that would be worth that risk? I, lo I love the way you phrased that question because it, it gets to the heart of the truth of the matter. But the administration has been falling all over itself to keep on claiming this fiction that we're there on a counter-ISIS mission, that we're trying for the enduring defeat of ISIS. They love that phrase. I've seen it from the Secretary of Defense. I've seen it from the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I've seen it from the Pentagon official releases and people in the White House. But Kirby keeps saying it over and over and over. It's not true. That's like saying we're trying to drain a swimming pool with an eyedropper in a rainstorm. It ain't going to happen. You may take out one or two people here, but it'll never eliminate the the, uh, the troops. And look, we've had two decades of time to see in, in Afghanistan and Iraq that you can't eliminate and wipe them out. And it's certainly not with a handful of troops, as you just pointed out in little dots on the map. They're not doing anything but protecting themselves and being points of vulnerability. So what we should be doing is withdrawing those troops into out of these pointless little dots where it's really hard to defend them and reposition them in places, even in the Middle East, to where there's uh, where there's more places where we can defend them. So what that will do is it'll remove the vulnerability, it will make it harder for these Iran-backed groups to even attack us, and it will preserve all of our ability to defend American interests and American uh, vital national security interests throughout the region. That's what we should do, but unfortunately all anyone's talking about is let's bomb Iran. Well, if, as you say, it's nearly impossible to, you know, el eliminate various groups because of the nature of how dispersed they are in the region, um, uh, guerrilla, uh, non-official non armies and the like, and given the ambiguity around who actually uh, conducted the attack that ended in the death of these three troops, what is the wisdom, then, of you having just said that it's necessary that America have a response? Is it possible for America to have a response that is constructive, substantive, targeted, and actually addressing the people who committed the, the killings against these troops, the, the drone strike against these troops, in this kind of information-unclear scenario? Well, just I think that our intelligence is, is able to to tell the uh, to find out who actually did it, and I completely agree with what you said. I think that is absolutely the right thing. The people who killed American troops should be held accountable and be responsible and, and be destroyed, and we should kill them. I, I don't have any question about that. 
But then the next question is, then what? And that's one of the big problems I have with a lot of these people talking about how they should go in heavy with Iran and hit these other groups, et cetera. They don't talk about what next, because if you don't move any of these troops that are there right now, then, as Robbie just said, they remain points of vulnerability. It remains easy access for these Iran-backed groups. And that's what drives me crazy, is that no one wants to take away the difficulty for the Iranian side. If you don't like the Iranian side, you should make it harder for them to attack America, not keep it easy as it is right now. So it's got to be a combination of, of striking the people that hit us so nobody's in confusion that they can get away with killing an American, but also let's not make it easy on the bad guys. So how would you respond to demands I'm seeing from some uh, top uh, members of Congress, including, I believe, Senator John Cornyn and Senator Lindsey Graham, who had uh, Representative Dan, Dan Crenshaw, um, all counseled an immediate strike on Iran, on Tehran itself, um, uh, you know, drawing some uh, criticism from other figures on the right, including Candace Owens and Tucker Carlson. Uh, what would happen if we, uh, if we attacked, immediately attacked Iran itself? The probability of a, of a broader war that we get sucked into would be off the charts. It would be way high. And that's what really, I'll just be honest, annoys me when I hear these people talk. Now, Crenshaw should frankly know better. He had some military experience. But some of these others, they don't see, especially Lindsey Graham, seems to have no concept of what his words would mean on the ground. Because if you go and you hit Iran, or look, Iran just showed they're not going to sit passive by they weren't passive when we assassinated Soleimani in 2020. They had pinpoint strikes on an American base in al-Assad and wounded 100 Americans. They have recently attacked targets in Iraq, in Syria, in Pakistan, in retaliation for things that they claim happened to them. They will not be passive. So if you go and you hit them, or if you take out Soleimani, which actually I've heard some other people suggest here recently, shockingly, that's an act of war and they're going to retaliate. So you have to answer me, all these people, what next? What if they don't get deterred like you hope they would, and instead they escalate and hit even more Americans, and now they're not three are dead, but now 30 are dead, or 300 if it gets into a war? Then what are you going to do? That's what they have to answer to me. And, Colonel, just so we don't jump the gun, yesterday uh, a— uh uh, a national security spokesperson, when questioned, seemed to acknowledge that they didn't have any evidence tying this attack to Iran. Has there have there been any, any updates? What evidence exists to suggest that Iran was behind this? Well, I, like I, I think uh, Ms. Singh said it in one of those uh, interviews, you know, they they believe and have a lot of evidence that Iran is supporting them. Uh, you know, and they have been, you know, whether it's the, the Houthis or, or some of these Khatib Hezbollah, uh, Hezbollah itself in Lebanon, et cetera, that they provide a lot of, the, you know, the training, the ammunition, support, et cetera, just on a regular basis. So indirectly, almost for sure that they were associated with it. But there's no evidence that they actually directed it like this is what they want to do. I think it's one of the misconceptions that a lot of people think that, that uh, you know, Tehran is like a, a puppet master and all these are just strings on their fingers. And I don't think they have that much control. They probably wish they did, but I don't think they do. But it is true that they are responsible for enabling these people. And I'm sure that they're happy to see them uh, attack Americans. But the bigger issue for us is that it is in America's vital national interest to avoid unnecessary, pointless wars that would drain our resources and result in more American deaths for a war that we do not need to fight. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only, my follow-up would just be that 
by extension of that logic, one could say that because America overwhelmingly supp supplies military aid to any number of countries, but in this instance, Israel, that any actions that Israel then takes, or let's say if it is found to be committing a genocide uh, by the ICJ or any other international court, that any rebuke to Israel, whether through uh, international diplomacy or people fighting a war in response to Israel's actions, could easily say that America is a justifiable target, regardless if it endorsed any specific policy of Israel. And maybe maybe that's right, but that does seem to be the kind of parallel that we're describing here, does it not? Well, there's certainly many non-Americans who come to that conclusion all the time. And uh, Russia being the first one, because, you know, we're supplying Ukraine, Ukraine is killing Russian soldiers, ergo from them, that, that makes us responsible. Uh, you won't find anybody on Capitol Hill that would follow that logic, uh, just because it's, it's self-serving not to. But it's hard to ignore the parallels that you're talking about there, and frankly, they are what they are. Mm. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Always my pleasure, Robbie. Thanks for having me. Nikki Haley has a message for the GOP primary base. Vote for me or you'll get President Kamala Harris. Haley made that pitch that she should be the nominee on a Newsmax appearance, claiming that Trump would lose the general election. Let's watch. Let's speak some hard truths. If Donald Trump becomes the Republican nominee, we will get a President Kamala Harris. You mark my words. He cannot win a general election. Look at Iowa, look at New Hampshire. He can't get independence. He can't get suburban women. He's losing Republicans who say they don't want him and will vote for someone else. It's a problem. This is not personal for me. I have no problems with Donald Trump. I voted for him twice. I was proud to serve in his administration. This is about the fact America can't lose again. We lost in 2018, we lost in 2020, we lost in 2022. How many more times do we have to lose before we realize we have got to right this ship? Now, Nikki Haley's plea came as Republican voters seem surer than ever that former President Trump will, in fact, be the man to take on Biden in the general election. Real Clear Politics has Trump with an average 58-point lead over his competition, with a recent morning consult poll showing a 63-point lead over Nikki Haley. Haley can't seem to catch a break on the campaign tra trail either. During a recent stop, Haley was met by a protester who was really feeling the never Nikki message. Let's take a look. Only way we will get that done. None of us want new wars. None of us want new wars. interesting to see her specifically there getting uh, pushback for being hawkish, uh, which is a, a, a wild kind of turn of events if you think about where we were and the Republican Party was uh, 20 years ago during presidential campaigns, but I think a, wel a welcome sure. turn of events. It's changed a lot since then, and I've, I've said it many times, on that issue, on foreign policy, she is out of step with where a lot of people on the right are now. Uh, that's yeah. not all of her views are not out of step. And I think, you know, when she's making the pitch that she's more electable, she has some data on her side. The, the same polls that show Biden, in fact, beating, uh, show Trump, in fact, beating Biden, 
show that she would do even better than Trump. If you want to, you know, room right. for error here, um, I think that is a solid pitch. And then also there's all the question of whether Trump gets somehow disqualified for various legal reasons, right. um, which is, you know, why she's staying in. But at the end of the day, Trump is, if it's coming down to voting, Trump is absolutely going to be the nominee. He has a commanding lead. New Hampshire is now in the uh, rearview uh, mirror, where that was her best chance to do something. She had a impressive showing, but did not did not win, and has no prospects really for winning down the home stretch. Yeah. So there's, what are we doing here? <laughs> there's something really ironic and frustrating that the issue that might enable there to be a breakthrough candidate because of how much broad discontent there is with American interventionism is not being embraced by any of the candidates that pose the greatest threat because of their war chests and their, their, their broader um, popularity and the like to the leading nominees. And this is a frustration that you can apply to Nikki Haley and also one that the left has raised about Marianne Williamson, um, who has, I think, largely not touched the level of enthusiasm that Bernie Sanders had in the last two cycles because of this particular issue and the way that it's emerged at this particular time with the siege on Gaza that was really the nail in the coffin. And I don't know what to do with that. It does seem really frustrating that even though there are, what, 70 percent of Democrats who would prefer Biden not be the nominee, there are very few challengers at all, much less those who are really appreciating what it is that the public dislikes about that candidate, and same on the other side. Yeah, I mean, there's no way around it. The GOP primaries have been covered basically correctly by the media as a, as a competitive primary where sure. maybe, I, I'm sure you can point to specific weeks or aspects of coverage where competitors to Trump were being given more of a benefit of a doubt than they deserved, or maybe their odds of doing well were being drummed up a little bit by, a by frankly, a Trump wary, a, a, a sick of Trump media on the right itself. Mm. I think a lot of people on the right, despite what they say publicly, really wished yes. a Ron DeSantis uh, or Nikki Haley were going to, um, I mean, some of them on Mike Pence, were going to uh, get over the finish line, and they didn't really come close to that. But it wasn't—it was Trump's to lose, but there were a lot of, you know, out there, there were a lot of questions about what exactly was going to happen. Maybe someone was going to catch on. There were times before the indictments came out where DeSantis was getting, was getting within striking distance, and then in some of the specific states, obviously Nikki Haley was not that far behind Trump in New Hampshire. So I think it was covered— basically correctly, it's not, it's not that—that's not the issue. The issue is on the Democratic side. It's not been covered like anything approaching competitive at all, just that it's a coronation for Joe Biden, even though there's widespread and massive dissatisfaction with his candidacy, and there are people running against him who are getting some level of, of interest. Uh, I think, you know, RFK Jr., when he was still running against um, Biden within the Democratic uh, primaries got—he was getting a lot of attention from right-wing media, favorable attention, and then he got, you know, his, like, two weeks of, oh, my God, this wild conspiracy theorist is actually polling high. What does this say about misinformation? You know, the kind of fainting couch coverage uh, was generated by the mainstream media for a few weeks, and then that was all over. Yeah. Well, speaking of the left's relatively unfair coverage of the primary that they're denying is happening, um, Glenn Greenwald pointed out that Trump, in a, for the poll that we just mentioned, has a 63-point lead over Nikki Haley and is still being covered in the liberal press as though she has a, a real shot here at, at clinching the nomination. And, and many of those commentators, I will say, are doing so in a self-aware way. I was listening to an episode of Pod Save America the other day where the former Obama speechwriters that host that show were like, look, it's not that I think she's going to win, but obviously my interests are that she stay in the race as long as possible because any shot at Trump is good for my interests. I think that's mm -hmm. a fine position to take 
being politically self-aware and honest about one's own political perspective. But Glenn's making a slightly different point. He's saying that there is a kind of attention and seriousness with which uh, Nikki Haley's campaign is being treated that is not being given to Biden challengers, despite the fact that his lead over his challengers is, in fact, smaller than Trump's need over, uh, lead over Nikki Haley. And what do we do? What has the nature of the coverage of, let's say, Dean Phillips coming out of the New Hampshire result been in the liberal media? Is he getting any of the kind of bump that could actually give him the energy that Nikki Haley is getting as she's doing the rounds and all of these liberal news sources? Yeah, like I just said, I I'm not sure that it's Nikki Haley's getting too much attention, but rather that Marianne Williamson and Dean Phillips are not getting enough attention. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that point. Um, I, I, the numbers are probably kind of similar at this point. Uh, Trump's level of dominance over Nikki Haley versus Biden and Marianne and Dean Phillips. But obviously, Marianne and Dean Phillips haven't, you know, enjoyed nearly the same level of coverage and exposure to a national audience that Nikki Haley has. Um, so, so they're, you know, they're, um, they're they could be doing even better if they got, you know, regular town halls and debates and all of the att press attention Nikki Haley is getting. So I think it's a, a fair point. Of course, on the uh, but then just on the GOP side, there is the Trump could be. Again, I don't expect that to happen, but Trump could be disqualified, which is why she's honestly holding out. She's right. more likely to get the nomination that way than beating him in the actual primary elections, which is not going to happen. Right, and some people believe that uh, you know Joe Biden isn't going to perhaps have the physical stamina to get through uh, this campaign. Well, I, th I think he doesn't, but he's going to attempt it anyway. <laughs> uh, I mean, there. Yeah. I mean. But no, what I'm saying is that there are people who believe that he doesn't and that there is already a plan in place to pull him at the convention. Like, that—that that is what people— Maybe so Nikki Haley a, believes that, which very, is why she, she said Kamala Harris right. there. And, and those are very—they're very similar tracks here. I don't know. There, there's a, there's a bizarre parallels mm. happening on both sides uh, of this race that are justifying people staying in. But again, that that yeah. points to the difference here. I, I, I do want to mention this, this poll result before we go, because we are still talking in the context of the two-party system. RFK Jr. has— our, obviously broken out of that, as have Cornell West, um, Jill Stein, uh, and Claudia De La Cruz, who is a Socialist Party candidate that we haven't mentioned here before. Um, but uh, the, the, the polled, uh, asked ask the question um, whether or not, quote, I am satisfied by the two-party system of American politics, and I, I am not satisfied by the two-party system of American politics, and I want a third choice. 52% of Americans agree with that statement. 52% of Americans want an option outside of a duopoly. Only 26% uh, disagree. That's from a Reuters-Ipsos uh, poll that was taken uh, just last week. Mm. Something to consider since the primaries are not, in fact, over. More Rising right after this. MSNBC's Joanne Reed had a hot mic slip up while delivering a report on the situation at the southern border yesterday. Let's watch. Over the weekend, President Biden said he's ready to take action if Congress is serious about solving the border issue. If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. And Congress needs to get it done. Starting another war. <laughs> Now, Reed addressed the moment later in the show and apologized. 
Before we go, I just want to apologize very quickly. Uh, I was chatting during a clip that was playing, um, and you know, we try to keep this show very PG-13, so I just want to apologize to anyone who was listening to my behind-the-scenes chatter. Uh, deeply, deeply apologize for that, because you know it's PG-13 up around here. So thank you to you all for watching The Read no worries, Joy. I know that happens sometimes. Uh, while some are hopeful a border deal could make its way to President Biden's desk soon, former President Donald Trump seems hell-bent on making sure that never happens. On his website, Truth Social, Trump posted, quote, a border bill is not necessary to stop the millions of people pouring into our country. They are using this horrific Senate bill as a way of being able to put the border disaster onto the shoulders of the Republicans. The Democrats broke the border. They should fix it. No legislation is needed. It's it's already there. Trump appears to have allies in the Republican-controlled House, where Speaker Mike Johnson posted, quote, any border shutdown authority that allows even one illegal crossing is a non-starter. Thousands each day is outrageous. The number must be zero. Trump's aggressive stance against a border deal comes as Biden seems to recognize the severity of the crisis in the South. At a campaign stop in South Carolina, Biden said if the proposed legislation became law, he would shut down the border if necessary. It also give me as president the emergency authority to shut down the border until it could get back under control. If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. When pressed on what shutting down the border actually meant, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre seemed unable to define it. Here she is at a presser yesterday. There's, there, are different, there are different definitions, right, of what that looks like, of what actually uh, shutting down the border looks like, right? All right, that may be true, but the legislation uh, is what's being debated right now. And what seems clear, even Republicans seem to be acknowledging, is that there is a lot of what they asked for in this, what is it, an $8 billion package. But what they're also telegraphing really loudly, not just in uh, Donald Trump's truth, but other uh, Republican members of Congress, they're saying this is uh, Kevin Kramer, a Republican from North, uh, from North Dakota, quote, a border deal that actually reduced the flow of illegal immigration, that would be good for President Biden politically. And that seems to be the rub. There's this acknowledgement that to actually solve the crisis, which they have been focusing on, rightly or wrongly focusing on, and making one of the political priorities of Americans, to actually do something about it at this juncture would apparently, in their minds, give too much credit to Biden. I think more, more accurately would strip them of an ability to hit Biden, uh, attack Biden with that particular talking point. It's ironic because I think, frankly, Biden, by conceding this bill to Republicans, will lose some support from his own base. And it's not clear to me that this is a bargain that's worth fighting, except for that he's obviously very invested in getting Ukraine funding, which is tethered to it, across the finish line. But that's the dynamic here. There are um, billions of dollars of funds to support local governments and their efforts to address the border crisis. And Republicans are saying, no, I don't want it. Because why exactly? Because as the guest argued yesterday, and as Trump argued in that truth social message, well, they start saying Biden already has the authority to do whatever he wants to do. So they're basically saying, we want you to use executive authority and executive fiat to do X, Y, and Z, which, you know, maybe Biden eventually will do. But then what will be the, the response to that? You surpassed, you went around government. You, you, you are the authoritarian. You use executive fiat. They already attack Democrats regularly for using executive actions at all times. So it is becoming a very confusing game of hot potato here. So I agree in part and I disagree in part. Sure. I think that, look, I, 
not naive and no one should be naive. Of course, Republicans don't want to help pass a bill right now, which they don't want to give Joe Biden any kind of win. They want to keep his momentum as a president is stalling, and I think political considerations are absolutely a part of this. Um, now, the guest we had on yesterday um, talked about, um, people should go watch that interview, talked about things he thought the President Biden did have the authority to do right now, absent legislation that could help. Now, reason, however, one reason um, that border, uh, illegal border crossings are way, way, way up, and they are, I, I looked at the numbers, they are way up over the course of the last few years, has Part, some, a lot to do, or something at least to do, with the expiring of that Title 42, the, um, the pandemic-era policy Biden, to— Biden tried to keep that no, in no, effect. No, no, let me finish. Yes. Sure. So, but that is an example of legislation. So, you, you, if, you know, if you want to keep that going, you could pass a law. I mean, I, it wouldn't make any sense, because it was designed to keep COVID out of the country. Right. Which is it's, totally it's, arbitrary. It's not something that you want to do. Uh, but that is an example of, a, of an authority, like, that I don't, I don't think President Biden— I don't think any president should have the authority to expel people for that reason, because it's a it's a BS reason. Um, all that said, look, the the bill proposed does have has caps at is it five thousand. We're, we're debating what the actual caps are, but I mean, Republicans, the Republican base, the conservative base is has been furious about illegal immigration for actually for twenty years. That they you know that would that what they were mad about back in in the aughts when it was kind of overlooked as an issue by Republican elites at the time. Um, Zero is what the Republican base wants. So a bill that that codifies or enshrines a, a certain a, a threshold of legal crossings that then it's okay to do something about it. I think many uh, Republican vote not just their representatives fighting this for political reason, but the actual voters will be furious. And the way this is being received by uh, by conservatives, I'm I'm reading on social media is that this is Langford has committed one of the greatest betrayals of, of a Republican of the Republican Party in uh, recent memory. Um, I, I saw all sorts of people talking about, like, why did Trump endorse this guy? Why? Who were his opponents last time? Can we mm -hmm. get him a new primary opponent? There is fury at, uh, at, at him and at this bill. So, again, I, I'm not, you know, that's, that's just the reality on the right. I'm, for, for my part, I, I don't. Republicans are giving the game away by saying we're not going to endorse any border legislation unless the crossings are zero. There hasn't been a time since before human beings crossed the Arctic land bridge into North America, the border crossings well, between what is now Mexico and what's America okay, has ever federal, been zero. There wasn't a federal government then to stop that. There is now. They're saying by at no, in the policy at should no be day zero. during the Trump administration was the immigrant were crossings ever zero. At no day during any presidential uh, legislation well, uh, administration in the history of America, well, and border and, crossings and, and ever and been no days, zero. And, and on no days are there zero murders, but it's still the, the, the goal, the, 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 point, the policy is zero the, murders. The, this is like saying, uh, I will pay you what you're owed on the day that you don't breathe. It's, it's letting myself off the hook from ever having to pay you sums that you are owed. The Republicans are intentionally setting a, a bar that cannot be met. At no point are, zero, are border crossings zero. Well, right, but the bill, it's, it's, but the bill sets insane. a bar that they're not willing to accept. Okay, fine. You set, they want to but set no, the no, bar no. at zero. And again, this is not coming but from me. This is what true, they're saying. Robbie. Set the bar at zero. That's not true. And enforce it to get it that's to zero. That's not true. They could say the new number is X. And that could be a potential reasonable number. They could look at, let's say, hypothetically, the average daily border crossings under Donald Trump, average it out over the course of the four years of his term, and say this is the number that at, at, at which all of the um, provisions in Biden's bill. I mean, the border the border in. apprehensions are now are now. Yeah, but that's yeah. I'm not disputing that, Robbie. The question is whether or not they are 
Republicans are obstructing legislation that could bring border crossings down, that already is very, frankly, draconian policy, with a very setting a low number of 5,000, that if it's violated, kicks down to being like 3,500 for weeks until it gets back, it, for, until it's low below 5,000 for weeks and weeks and weeks, which is about on par for what the average border crossings were when Donald Trump was in office. But yep. instead of saying that that's a number or 2,000 is a number or any other number that could be at all tethered to reality, they're saying if a single person, unless you can find a policy that magically prevents a single person from ever crossing the American border, we're not going to pass it. And that is plainly a political choice. I mean, the policy, from my standpoint, just seems pretty arbitrary. Well, why 5,000? Why not 4,000? Why not 6,000? Why not? Well, yeah, and it's so, so it's so I don't want to support it then. I, I mean, uh, and, and it, it's, if it's a families, they're going to be dealt differently than if it's a single individual, and it depends on their country of origin. We can send people back well, to Mexico, but we can't send them all. back. That's not arbitrary at all. It's, you treat families differently because of the public bipartisan outroar about the idea of families being separated. People think that's horrifying. People with families understand that that's horrifying. Trump got a lot of blowback for it, and nobody wants to go into that space again, Republican or Democrat. It's not arbitrary. It's humanitarian. All right. Well, I think Republican primary voters feel differently, but that's—and that's where the, the crux of the opposition to this policy Well, is people from. who live in Texas and people who live in they parts don't of the want, country that are actually of, They being, want the border crossings brought down to zero. Yeah, they're not going to get it. Because well, they're of, not going to get it if they co-sign this policy, because well, it doesn't do anything no, until it gets to 5,000. That is not true. First of all, border crossings are already over 5,000, so the policy would immediately go into effect. So what are you talking about? The, what, what the Republicans are saying is, we're not doing anything. There's a horrible crisis on the border, but we're not going to do anything about it for 10 months. Because as much as we're hand-wringing about how this is a threat to national security, and now ISIS is going to come over the border, and all of the wild things that are being said, and, and the legitimate concerns that people have about safety and the burden on um, the social safety net and those kind of things, we're going to do nothing about it for 10 months because it's more important for us to get a few more jobs in at Biden, who's going to lose anyway, in all likelihood, polls suggest, than to actually address the crisis that I'm, I'm purporting to think is so important. Mm -hmm. That's the stance of the Republican Party right now. Those, there's a Republican Party in no, in no uncertain terms that is thwarting any effort to address the crisis that they say I mean, is I a public priority. I, I, I think that's part of it, but also there is sincere opposition to this bill in particular Robbie, for the reasons do you know I— how, if I say uh, if I say that I won't, I won't support any bill that doesn't achieve something that's unachievable, that's constructively saying there's no bill that I'm going to support? I don't think they think it's unachievable. Zero border crossings? This, well, it could say—I mean, the, the, the plan could say that there's a shutdown of the border until we achieve zero border crossings, which is what Republican—that's what Republican voters want. So they just want some— Republican political leader to actually propose that and give that to them, which is why what, they put, picked Trump in the first what place. What does it mean to shut down the border? To have more border security, more, to, act, to have the barriers the that, the, that, Biden, that the Supreme Court <laughs> is ordering taken down so the Biden administration it, it, can get rid of you them. You know that the Supreme Court, you know, because you sat here right now and agreed with me, you know that the Supreme Court did not order them to take any barriers down. With allowing Court them, allowing them to take them was down. Was that federal but, okay. border enforcement uh, uh, workers can do what they need to do to enforce the border right. without They're interference down from the state barriers. actors. They're taking down the barriers. They're taking down some razor wire that was put up. That so federal they can law more people. So that federal because federal law enforcement 
border security agents were saying that it was impeding their ability to patrol and protect the border. That is the rationale. So you don't uh, have to like... Concern, I, I remember okay, a day I'm, when federal border agents were the heroes that wanted people wanted to fund more. Now Republicans are saying don't fund them, don't help them, obstruct them, and, and that apparently is going right, to help just, the border I'm crisis. Just giving you, I'm not even giving you what my perspective is. I'm giving you what my understanding of the conservative perspective is, so you can take that or leave that. More rising after this. I'm sure you all remember the explosive New York Times article from the end of last year called How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th. We have a big update now on that story. The New York Times has pulled an episode of its podcast, The Daily, about sexual violence from the October 7th attack on Israel as debates from inside the paper about reporting on the subject heat up. Per The Intercept, the Daily episode had been scheduled for January 9th and was based on that article from Pulitzer Prize winner Jeffrey Gettleman, claiming Hamas had, quote, systematically used sexual violence as a weapon of war. Originally, Gettleman's article was praised in the New York Times halls, but criticism of the piece began to grow internally and externally, leading the Daily producers to pause the episode. Joining us now to weigh in is editor of The Gray Zone, Max Blumenthal, who's been following this very closely and doing much of the firsthand reporting uh, on the original episode and trying to substantiate some of the claims that were made therein. Welcome back, Max. Good to be back. And thanks for hosting me at a more politically difficult, difficult time to take some of these bogus claims down. Well, it is it's a difficult time, as you mentioned, but because of a lot of the groundwork that you and Aaron and folks at the Gray Zone uh, have done and Electra and Fatata have done on this, there is more space now to talk about it, apparently so much so that this is being discussed and debated within The New York Times. So tell us, what is the source of the controversy? We, we're the source of the controversy. I mean, they call us critics in The New York Times now, but everybody and their mother and their mother's baby's daddy and the baby's moil knows that we are responsible for causing this crisis at the New York Times, where New York Times internally is having a freak out over Jeffrey Gettleman and his team's uh, alleged, like I call it alleged reporting, because I don't even know how much reporting they did, accusing, uh, Hamas of using rape as a systematic weapon on October 7th in order to validate the Israeli government's genocidal rampage through the Gaza Strip. Um, and we just had been breaking it down for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then apparently the New York Times wanted to go ahead with this daily kind of video episode in which they were going to report systematic rape as a weapon on October 7th as a fact without including any of the criticism, but other Times staffers, basically the Times rank and file, the journalists were not having it. And they, according to reporting from The Intercept, which also doesn't credit us, just refers to us as critics, which is kind of funny because The Intercept also validated a lot of these lies uh, that we've been debunking. Um, they revealed that it was the New York Times higher ups that were holding on to Gettleman's reportings reporting because of their own ideological proclivities. Um, that, for example, Joel Kahn, and a New York Times board member, had ties to the Israel lobby. But the journalists weren't having it. The facts weren't there. We had debunked many of the witnesses. And then family members of the witnesses, as I'll explain, came out and basically 
denied Gettleman's reporting. So there was a new article from The New York Times yesterday, UN to study reports yeah. of sexual violence in Israel during October 7th attack, that does repeat um, several of the uh, of the accusations, makes a note of, of some of the testimony from these various people, uh, Sapir being the first name of one of the uh, alleged eyewitnesses, um, some other information from survivors and first responders, et cetera. This article does, I, I think, a better job of um, acknowledging some, as you said, one person disputing how they were characterized initially by the time and some other matters. I guess my question is, is your argument here now at, over the use of the word, I guess, systemic? Um, because I think, as you conceded in our last interview, it is perfectly plausible that there was sexual assault taking place, but that there was something um, a little beyond that alleged in the initial article, that it was directed or, or so widespread or something like that. I mean, I'm just going off the evidence, and there is evidence that Hamas militants killed non-combatants on October 7th, shot them, killed them with grenades. There's, there's video evidence of that. Right now, there is no evidence of any rape taking place. That doesn't mean I'm going to just deny it. But the, but the claims put forward in this New York Times article, the claims put forward in The Guardian, the claims put, for, put forward by N NBC, those are what we've been debunking. They don't add up. And so when you talk about this witness, Sapir, who is the Israeli police's key witness, and the Israeli police have acknowledged in an interview with Haaretz that that witness, that there is no physical or forensic evidence or video evidence or any evidence to back up any of her claims, when this witness claims to have wit been shot in the back, then witnessed uh, gang rape, and then Hamas militants whipping out three decapitated heads of women. And this person can't be fully identified. You have to start questioning some of these claims. I mean, it sounds like something out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We've seen so many lies, the lies about 40 beheaded babies, the lie about the um, pregnant woman's fetus being cut out. And all of these lies boiling down to some of the same sources, like the so-called rescue organization, Zaka, which as we now know from a Haaretz investigation, was bankrupt on the day of October 7th and is now flush with millions of dollars because of the tall tales and lurid stories that spun out on October 7th. You have to start to question them. And so we put forward these questions and showed inconsistencies in testimony by witness after witness, including Zaka, who Jeffrey Gettleman in the New York Times relied on. And so what Jeffrey Gettleman did is he went back to these witnesses to try to get them to validate his initial reporting, and they couldn't do it. Sapir changed her story again. Roz Cohen, another key witness, refused to speak to him on the grounds that he was traumatized. And the worst and sleaziest thing that Jeffrey Gettleman did is he went to a woman named Mural Alter, who is the sister of one of the key witnesses, Exhibit A, her name is Gal Abdush, the woman in the black dress who was found killed with burns on her head. And Gettleman just assumed, based on the video, that she had been raped by Hamas. Her own sister had come out and said there was no way she could have been raped, said this on Instagram, that the New York Times manipulated them into thinking that the story would be about something else. 
Her brother-in-law said the same thing in a separate interview with Israeli media. And so Gettleman calls up the sister, Miral Alter, and apparently tries to pressure her into backing down in order to save his own journalistic reputation. So this piece that you mentioned, Robbie, is one of the sleaziest exercises in damage control. It doesn't disprove anything by the so-called critics referring to us and other independent publications like Electronic Intifada and Mondo Weiss or what Brianna has said here. Uh, and I think the scandal continues. Let, let me let me raise one other point. So in, in terms of the video evidence, uh, so I, I've seen the, the video footage um, as well. And what I can recall seeing that would perhaps support what is being reported or being described by several of these witnesses that you've described the issues you have with them um, is the some of the female bodies found in states of undress, also found with, I can recall vividly, um, ha bound hand, wrists tied together, that sort of thing. Um, what do you make of that? Well, we have uh, um, Sergeant G, who uh, I've actually uh, identified on Twitter. A lot of these Israeli uh, special forces figures, pilots, operate under uh, you know, kind of hidden identities, largely for fear of being prosecuted for war crimes. This guy is uh, in Special Rescue Unit 669 of the Air Force, and he claimed to the New York Times, as he did previously to, I believe, Haaretz and several other publications, that he found two young women in Kibbutzberry who were teenagers in a state of undress with semen on their back. The problem is there were no women found that way or official records of how everyone was found. And there were there were no there was no record. The only teenagers or young girls whose ages matched those of the ones described by Sergeant G were the Sharabi sisters who were 13 and 16, and they were found uh, in a state burned so badly that they could only be identified by their teeth and their DNA, and they were found with their mother directly with them. So he lied. This is someone who previously lied because I've been able to unmask him. He previously lied about find, founding a baby uh, thrown in a garbage can. And th this speaks to another massive scandal about October 7th that's finally been coming to the surface that Israeli media has been reporting on, but we were out in front of it. And it's, it's an, a scandal that continues to this day. The use of the Hannibal Directive, the only way that these girls and their mother would have been found, or the most plausible way, in a home that had collapsed on them in such a badly burned state, is that they were hit by a tank shell or a Hellfire missile fired by an Israeli tank or helicopter. And this happened repeatedly in Kibbutzberry. It's been documented, at least we, we, we've documented and confirmed that at least 16 Israeli civilians were killed in one home with uh, two tank shell strikes. And this was done in order to kill the captives and the Hamas militants to prevent Hamas from having the political leverage they now enjoy with having over 200 captives. And it continues now in the Gaza Strip, uh, a, a cousin of a hostage in the Gaza Strip, her name is Naomi Dan, has gone on Israel's national broadcaster, Khan News, and accused the Israeli government of enacting the Hannibal Directive to kill the Israeli captives there to prevent a prisoner swap. 
She said, you're killing our families instead of cutting the deal and having the ceasefire we need. So we've been exposing these scandals from the beginning. And now mainstream Israeli media is beginning to accept that we were actually on to something. We're not just a bunch of conspiracists. And it's only a matter of time before U.S. media is going to have to do this as well. But they're, they're resisting because of the higher ups at places like the New York Times who are ideologically committed to seeing Israel, quote unquote, win. Yeah, I did watch that uh, uh, news interview that you just described with the uh, hostage members, uh, family member, and it was really compelling. It is a remarkable contrast between the kinds of coverage and stories that are aired, even on Israeli TV, which you would think would might be more ideologically opposed to airing that kind of content as opposed to an American uh, and the American media. So just to, to wrap up here, the the posture of this is that the New York Times usually, often, frequently puts out a podcast, daily podcast episode that covers some of its more important reporting. And so you'll read it in the New York Times, and then a day or two later, you'll hear about it in your morning as you're getting dressed, listening to the Daily. In this case, the difference between the coverage that and the, and the Daily after there was this critique from the staffers was going to be so significant from the coverage of the original reporting that it raised some questions about the credibility of the new reporting and whether or not corrections were due. You also alluded to a story in The Guardian that's also gotten some pushback. There was a corroborated, a very similar um, story uh, alleging uh, widespread sexual abuse on October 7th there. And now there are some additional, uh, not just questions about the substance of that reporting, but also plagiarism claims associated with it. Yeah. I mean, Brianna, we're looking at one of the biggest media scandals of our time, where basically one journalist after another at August enlightened liberal publications were led into publishing one fabrication after another by a government that had curated witnesses to present a story in order to justify genocide. I mean, it's unbelievable. So you have the scandal of the caliphate at the New York Times, Rukmini Kalamaki, this self-styled national security reporter and ISIS expert, was basically led into a journalistic disaster by relying on one supposedly former supposedly former ISIS member who turned out to be a fraud and she did this very popular podcast and he made the whole thing up. Here you have a collection of witnesses who are spinning out frauds for not just one journalist but journalists across the media and it appears if you look at the plagiarism in The Guardian by uh, Bethan McKernan who blocked me as soon as I pointed it out, her plagiarism from NBC News, that they're both not copying each other, they're copying the Israeli government, which seems to have furnished them a document, and they just sloppily cut, copy and pasted the same document about uh, witness testimony into their piece, and it's testimony that turns out to be bogus. Then you have Jeffrey Gettleman, who relied on the same witness. I mean, they're all relying on the same witnesses who are furnished to them by the Israeli government, which is just known for its lies its deceit, its criminality, and now they're caught. Jeffrey Gettleman previously was caught in Zimbabwe fabricating a quote by then leader Robert Mugabe, and it looks like he blamed an anonymous local journalist leading the police on a manhunt for an anonymous journalist, but he had to acknowledge that he made up the quote. So there's a long history here, but when you make up stories about official enemies who are hated, like Robert Mugabe, where you know Zimbabwe has faced sanctions for years by the 
former British colonists in the U.S. And he's portrayed as this evil, dark dictator. Or when you make up stories about Hamas, nobody's supposed to care. You're allowed to lie because of the, uh, the, the, the insidious racism that still pervades liberal culture. And when the lie is about uh, savage Arab barbarian males coming in and raping Jewish women at a music festival, well, that falls on fertile soil even among liberals. Uh, but we could tell at the Gray Zone and at other in independent publications that these were not, these, the, these stories didn't add up and that these were lies that kill because these lies and these fabrications and distortions of half-truths and exaggerations of facts on October 7th are designed to generate political consent for Israel's genocidal assault in Gaza. So they need to be called out and we're going to continue to do it. Max, thank you for all of your independent journalism. And before for... we go, I just want to say, you know, we get yeah. um, we get a response when you're on. This is a show that features robust debate. So Gettleman or anyone else involved in reporting on this story is welcome on our show. The uh, pro-Israel expert voices are welcome on our show. We would never, even though it was alleged in a recent hit piece on us, we would I would never, ever, ever cancel a guest for their ideological reasons. We on feature us. more diversity of thought on this show than any other new show there is. Uh, so just want that said again for the record. Max Blumenthal, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Ukraine Security Services reports that five people have been charged and one person detained for embezzling nearly $40 million intended to buy arms to support the war effort against the Russians. Security officials say that the investigation into the alleged fraud dates back to August 2022, when officials signed a contract for artillery shells worth $39.6 million with an arms firm. After receiving payment, the company employees were supposed to transfer the funds to a foreign arms manufacturer, which would then deliver the ammo to Ukraine. Instead, the money made its way to various accounts around Ukraine and the Balkans. Ukraine's prosecutor general says that the funds have since been seized and will be returned to the country's defense budget. Meanwhile, there may have been a shakeup in Ukraine's military authority. Reports indicate Ukraine's commander-in-chief, Valery Zelensky, Shaluzhny may have been out of a job as of yesterday. No official dismissal notice has been released yet, but independent Ukrainian media confirmed that he had been fired. Kiev has denied that dismissal took place. Shaluzhny served as commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces since July of 2021. The reports emerged in November of 2023 that there were disagreements between Zelensky and Zeluzhny. Ukrainian media outlet Ukrainska Pravada later reported that Zelensky was allegedly bypassing Zeluzhny in communication with some military commanders. Mm. So it's not clear if he was actually dismissed here. There were Ukrainian reports that he was being dismissed. Uh, he's a very popular military official in Ukraine. Um, the, there have been hints of tension between him and Zelensky. Uh, my understanding is he is perceived as a little bit more 
forthright and clear-eyed about their odds of winning the war. He made some comments several months ago um, likening the situation they're in with Russia to World War I, where it's stalemate and there's—where he, he said, basically, there's mm -hmm. not going to be some sudden breakthrough where we drive the Russians out of the country. He says the, the, the casualties Russia was willing to undertake of its own forces in order to achieve this is staggering, and, you know, if they had any— I mean, he was condemning it, obviously, said if they had any decency, they would withdraw, but that from his perspective, they don't, and they're going to fight on, and thus they're in a kind of stalemate situation—a stalemate, but one in which Russia controls part of Ukraine. And uh, that, you know, that is not the note that Zelensky ever sounds, that it's hopeless or—I mean, he, you know, he increasingly sounds like, you're—the West is abandoning us, you're giving up on us, you have to give us more funding so we can fight this battle for you. This is a battle for the soul of Western culture and liberal values, et cetera. Um, kind of a different tone. So if he was let go, that would have been something. It's possible he was let go and the blowback caused them to reconsider. Um, again, these are reports from Ukrainian uh, media sources, not true what the actual yeah. truth of the matter is. Well, it, it obviously is a very different kind of uh, climate than it was a year ago with USA largely being halted. Uh, it's been connected to this package that would include uh, funds for the border, uh, which Mike Johnson has obstructed. Republicans have said they won't pass. There's some debate as to whether or not the deal is actually insufficient or whether or not there are political implications, political benefits to being able to argue that Joe Biden is not doing anything about the border and therefore obstructing it until after the election um, is potentially what the Republicans are planning to do. There has been reporting that indicates that that's exactly what is the plan, but that obviously implicates Ukraine funding. Democrats have largely been willing to give, Democrat, uh, give Republicans everything they want on the border because they're so desperate to pass Ukraine aid and Republicans still aren't um, taking them up on it. So that also shines an interesting light on this corruption story uh, that we led with. Now, uh, The Guardian reported that even though uh, Ukraine is known as one of the most uh, corrupt countries in the world, that because of the nature of the war and the sacrifice that so many Ukrainians have given uh, of life and limb in the context of fighting this war, there is less tolerance socially for corruption than there was uh, previously. People are more in a kind of a uh, unified spirit in the country, um, which makes this, I think, that much more galling. Five people uh, arrested uh, in relation to this, millions of dollars that were supposed to be spent on artillery, artillery, which was uh, apparently some of which was diverted to a, a personal account, some of whom chose to flood the country. They all stand to get up to 12 years in prison if they are convicted of this crime. Uh, this is a story like this inspire confidence in Americans who are looking at the Democratic, largely bipartisan, yeah. but establishment Democratic efforts to pass more funding for Ukraine when you see that these kinds of things are happening. Frankly, money being uh, misspent or misappropriated in this way does not surprise me in the least. In fact, I'd be shocked to learn it wasn't happening. I, I, we know from our own our own military loses, you know, if the Pentagon fails its budget every year, fa fails its audit, right. does it m loses um, millions, perhaps billions of dollars spent in uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places year after year. So if, if we can't account for where all the money went, Ukraine, which has, uh, uh, as you noted, less of a history of, of 
social institutional trust, more issues with corruption, is more of a developing nation um, in the midst of a war effort. Um, it, it is not surprising at all to me that this is occurring, but it should probably raise additional questions about what we are doing here and what our strategy is and why we would give them even more money, given that their top military commander thought six or eight months ago that they were basically—this was, this was as far as they were going to get. And uh, it, it needs to be—diplomatic uh, di forces just need to take over, even if that hurts a little bit for Ukraine. To your point, by the way, uh, Responsible Statecraft published a piece at the very end of last year saying the Pentagon can account for 63 percent of nearly $4 trillion in assets. Uh, the DOD regularly buys parts and equipment it doesn't need because it can't keep tracks of the parts and equipment it already owns. That is an absolute disaster, and I think there should be a much more fulsome conversation happening domestically about cutting cuts to military spending, which never seemed to be on the chopping block uh, from the so-called fiscally conservative Republicans in the same way that, let's say, um, school lunches have been very much in the, the agenda. No, uh, not this guy. I would chop, 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 chop. Not just a nice salad for the kids' lunch. I would chop that military budget. Yeah, we— we know. But the reality is the Republican Party has been very aggressive on cutting these domestic spending programs without similarly being invested in, in cutting um, military spending despite the obvious waste here. But this is a little bit of a different story from the one that was being told in Ukraine. This is a story—I'm not saying it's better or worse, no, right. this is story, but about— in specific individuals with stealing. malice stealing, right. whereas ours is— I mean, again, I'm not like writing it off. I don't know. Accounting errors. I don't know which is worse, to be right. honest. I mean, it's the kind of errors that people, go, you know, the IRS can come after you for for making with your sure. own finances all the time. But when the government does it, well, oops. Sure, but I also think this, a lot of this has got to be, you know, the, can the Pentagon really not account for it, or is it doing things that it doesn't want to be accountable for? Right. So the story of the three troops that have uh, been killed in Jordan uh, is also a story about what is this base. Where is this base? Actually, there's some dispute about where, where it is because it's on a, a borderline between countries. What is happening there? Why are there, you know, 8,000 military bases scattered across the world that most of us are not aware of? And is that really what we're talking about when we say that there's 63 percent of a $4 trillion budget that's unaccountable? Yeah. Indeed. We will continue to look at that. More rising in just a minute. a new rap god. Rapper Tom McDonald is out with a new song featuring um, a, a prolific rap artist, The Daily Wire's Ben Shapiro. The internet is going wild over this song, Facts, which racked up over six million views in just two days on YouTube and hit number one on iTunes, earning the praise of the self-proclaimed queen of rap, Nicki Minaj. Nicki wrote on X that Ben Shapiro put out a diss record. He said his comment sections are filled with woke Karens. The song is number one on U.S. iTunes. What is really happening and who's that other man rapping, is this real life? He said, Nikki, take some notes. She later added, I just listened to it, Ben Shapiro, not bad, congrats on number one, but it definitely sounds like Roman's Revenge when the beat first came in. I don't know. Nicki Minaj has landed herself in some hot water over an ongoing feud with fellow rapper Megan Thee Stallion, real name Megan Pete. The duo have been feuding for the past several weeks over revelations that Nicki Minaj's husband is a registered sex offender. Minaj and Pete have traded diss tracks and barbs, which seemingly came to a head after Minaj seemed to attack Pete's dead mother in her new song, 
Bigfoot, which was a diss track in response to a lyric on Megan Thee Stallion's song. Now, Minaj's own fans took it to the internet and seemed to uh, dox the cemetery where Megan Thee Stallion's mother is buried and encouraged others to go and desecrate the tomb. As of now, no damage to the grave has been reported. Yikes. So there are, are layers of uh, beef here. I don't know anything about this feud. Uh, so I just Google it just to get the, the Megan Thee Stallion stuff out of the way. So there's a line in one of Megan's songs where she says, um, you're, you're not really mad at me, you're mad at Megan's law. And Megan's law is a law yes. intended to protect um, victims of victims sex and youth, crimes. child vict victims of sexual abuse. And both Nicki Minaj's brother has been convicted and is serving, I think, a life or close to life, like many decades long jail time for abusing, I believe, an 11-year-old. And her husband was, got in trouble for not registering as a sex offender in wherever they live um, because of events in his own past. So Nicki Minaj has these two close people to her who she's got a lot of flack from her own audience over because she doesn't seem to... Not only does she not kind of distance herself rhetorically uh, from what they ha mm. have done in the past, but seems to go out of their way to defend them in a way that is, doesn't really gel with her audience, which is, you know, has always been, you know, diverse and I think welcoming and LGBT and all of those kinds of things. So that's one part of it. Apparently, in response now to Megan Thee Stallion including that line, which is a pretty good double entendre, uh, the Megan's Law line, um, now they're. So there are these calls to go and desecrate. And Megan the Stallion is the did uh, did the, the WAP song, which Ben Shapiro criticized, and that became a big thing. So there's that layer right. to it. If I'm following oh, this, and one other one other thing to the audience forget, can tell my investment to, to in not knowledge miss. is very high so here. So the Nicki Minaj diss track in response to Megan is called Bigfoot, and it's called that because well, Megan the Stallion is famously shot in yeah. the foot. And that seems to some to be also right. in poor taste to want to be making fun of a woman who got shot in a kind of a domestic abuse situation. Megan Thee Stallion's the one who got shot. Megan Thee Stallion got yeah, shot. Yeah, that's yes. horrible. I know, we talked Agreed. about that before. So, Nicki Minaj, who's the one that's doing the diss track associated with the side that's desecrating graves and shooting people in the foot and being associated with child sex predators, is also giving big ups to Ben Shapiro uh, for collaborating with this uh, rapper, Tom McDonald, who I was not previously familiar with, on this track. Let's just get into some of the lyrics, shall we? Okay. Must we? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's the that's the point, right? Go for it. Um, so Ben Shapiro's verse, uh, which is the second verse of the song, uh, goes. I mean, you heard. You, you got to really hear it let, let, to let understand me, the first, flow. Let me give my overall <laughs> impression. Okay, go so for it. So I. I, I think this had some merit in the same way. It reminded me of like, of, uh, I can't, why am I blanking? Um, Weird Al. Sure. It sounded like white and nerdy to me, is, is frankly what the song sounded like. I think that's aspirational. I think that that's a, 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 a real compliment to the rappers and does a yeah, disservice I, I, to Weird Al Yankee. Okay, I, I, I thought it was <laughs> clever. Um, and, but not like not like a good song I'm going to like listen to or something. I mean, this isn't the kind. But of weird Al like songs anyway, are good. People do listen to them. It's, they're they're yeah, good. I, I think it, it has merit in terms of the parody. Anyway, sure. go ahead. Read me some lyrics. Uh, ben Shapiro says, "Let's look at the stats. I've got the facts. My money like Lizzo. My pockets are fat. Lizzo, who he's also beefed with for reasons." Mm -hmm. um, Homie, I'm epic. Don't be a wop. Dog, it's a yarmulke. Homie, no cap. Near rhyme, I guess. 
Is that enjambment? Oh, you're, it's a know. slant rhyme. <laughs> slant rhyme. Slant rhyme is what we call it. <laughs> okay. Um, so, of course, he feuded with, as you mentioned, um, uh, Megan Thee Stallion and... Over WAP. Uh, What's-her-face. Sorry. Uh, uh, Cardi B. Come to me. Oh, yeah, uh, Cardi yeah. B over the song WAP. Uh, he found it to be offensive, um, inappropriate for radio Cardi play. B is the other one on that song. See, if you had told me that was Nicki Minaj, I would not have argued with you. I don't know. And so it's, it's really odd for someone who professionally does what Ben Shapiro does to have cultivated all of these rap feuds with so many people. We've got Lizzo. We've got Megan Thee Stallion. We've got Cardi B. Somehow he's beefing with all of them and bringing up these beefs in this song. He goes on to say, look at the graphs, look at my charts. You're blowing money on strippers and cars. You're going to prison. I'm on television. Dogs, to be clear, every time I say dog, it's spelled D-A-W-G, and you should really internalize that. Dogs, no one knows who you are. Keep hating on me on the internet. My comment section, all woke Karens, and I make racks off compound interest. Y'all live with your parents. Mickey, take some notes. I just did this for fun. All my people download this. Let's get a billboard number one. So I think the other guy was talented, though. Do you? Yeah. What, which of the other fellas' lyrics I don't know. resonated the most with you? It was, I don't know, what it, what is, it, it was kind of funny. Is I'm, that just, okay? I'm just curious. Of course it's okay. It's a free country. I just wanted to well, know I just listened to it for the first time about you. 30 seconds ago. So, um, Yeah, I look, I, I think so. The, so in response to Nikki kind of like, validating Ben Shapiro's effort. Uh, again, a lot of her fans were frustrated because they said Ben Shapiro is someone who has said that rap is a useless art, that it takes no talent, that it's not art at all. Um, he is obviously- And now he's the number these... one rap artist in the country by some. Yes, that's- Objective a, metrics. A, a totally real thing. And <laughs> um, that there's no reason for her to go out of her way to, Give plaudits to someone who one did a, like an embarrassing poor job at rapping, embarrassingly poor job at rapping, but also who has um, embodied values that are so distant from what she and her audience actually cares about, and um, it does kind of give the feel of a. Uh, you know, I'm a counterculture person, so I'm not a, I'm not afraid of my associations, and I'm I'm not afraid of you know. Mm -hmm. saying something nice to someone who other people hate. This shows how uh, edgy I am. Um, but that can, be, that can be a move people make, but this feels like it's a little bit made out of ignorance of maybe the entirety of who Ben Shapiro is and what he stood for, because he's literally attacked <laughs> Megan, you know, uh, Megan the Stallion. In, in the rap, he says that she needs to take notes, uh, that Nicki Minaj rather needs to take notes. And that's what her follow-up to was about, where you can clear, it's clear that she read a little bit more. I was like, oh. You're saying that I need to take notes? Nah. Uh, so I don't know. It's just so silly. The last thing I'll say is, you're, and you're not going to agree with this at all, which is fine, but um, there, art that is specifically made by conservatives to be conservative has a long history, and conservatives will be the first to admit this, of being just terrible, just very bad. Um, entertainment, art, Film, etc., with a with a heavy-handed, with a deliberate. Obviously, there can be there is compelling art with conservative political themes in it, uh, somewhat inadvertently sometimes. Um, but it, if it's done deliberately, it often ends up being bad. The Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro, Jeremy Boring are trying to prove that that need not be the case, and that they can make compelling um, art with a political message, um, or, or just with or just with a with a not 
specifically liberal message sometimes the, the new snow white thing they're doing so um, I don't know if this is uh, if this is going to be if, if people will consider this a step in the right direction but um, obviously it's uh, racking up a lot of views and at the end of the day that's what matters more rising right after this There's a shocking new CNN investigation into Gaza cemeteries that have been des desecrated by the IDF. At least 16 cemeteries have been destroyed, representing thousands of graves. Now, CNN has done an investigation into the IDF's rationale. They say that Hamas has a tunnel system under the, at least one cemetery, which justifies it being raised. Here's what happened when, the C when CNN took its camera team to investigate. We're asking the general if we can actually see the shaft to the tunnel. But the answer is no. So? There's all kinds of machinery which I don't want you to, uh, just to take pictures of. The security might force. But what about if we don't film it? We just no look with our eyes. And we... then you, you might fall in. The whole thing can collapse. Well, you have to walk to the edge. The edge is not secured. It can collapse. There's machinery, so on. It's, it's not something I'm going to take a risk on. Now, the Israeli military provided this drone footage of the alleged tunnel shafts, but the military reportedly did not provide CNN any evidence behind their claim that they found a Hamas tunnel underneath the cemetery. You can see the CNN put together in their investigation that the they used their own uh, geolocated maps of the place where the tunnels were supposed to be, and they were clearly outside the bounds of the cemetery that had been desecrated. Meanwhile, a dozen Israeli soldiers have stormed a Gaza hospital in the West Bank, allegedly disguised as doctors, nurses and patients, and veiled women, reportedly killing three Palestinian militants. So the CNN story is rather remarkable. The stories about the graves being desecrated has been covered widely online, on Al Jazeera, lots of discussion um, on social media for some time, but it hasn't really broken through until relatively recently. CNN did a piece on the, the cemeteries um, uh, about a week ago is the first time I saw it breaking through, and now it seems that there was a, enough interest for them to do this follow-up story where, you, as you saw in that video, they take their camera teams, they go to one of the cemeteries, and they say, well, what's going on here? Because the uh, under international law, desecrating a cemetery is a war crime unless it is connected to some military objective. And when they followed up about the military objective, you heard the um, Israeli soldier there with the South African accent indicate that there were these tunnels. When asked if they could see the tunnels, they were denied an opportunity to do so. They were given a picture of the tunnels, which they could then use satellite imagery to locate. And that's how they discovered that the tunnels were not, in fact, within the cemetery, which, of course, raises questions about the objective of not just desecrating cemeteries, but all of these other buildings and institutions that are functions of public life um, that many are pointing to as evidence that this is an effort to permanently prevent a population from wanting to come back here. And that's what's being adjudicated in front of the ICJ. Yeah, look, it seems a bit fishy, honestly, that they weren't going to show them this tunnel they supposedly found. They were eager to take reporters through tunnels in the past. Um, I know there was, you know, dispute over exactly where it connected to in the case of the hospital or whether it had been used recently, but there was some kind of tunnel and they were eager to show it off. So the fact that now they're like, no, no, there's machinery. I don't know what that means. They wouldn't even let them look at it. You know, um, I, I know our, our viewers think I don't come to this subject with enough skepticism, but I have plenty of it. it. That sounds fishy to me. Yeah. I mean, one other thing to note is that 
At, at, this is from CNN's reporting. They said that in other cases, the Israeli military appears to have used cemeteries as military outposts, um, erecting military infrastructure, um, seemingly maybe using the flat terrain as a staging ground for military exploits, which is obviously in violation of international law and I think probably shocking to the conscience uh, of, of many, even outside of a legal context. Um, but the other pretty—I don't mean to cut you off. No, no. More uh -huh. The other kind of extraordinary story is catching on camera uh, this IDF raid um, at a hospital in which members of the IDF are dressed in civilian clothing, um, one at least dressed as a woman to infiltrate the hospital and kill these three militants. There's no dispute about the fact that the, the men killed were all three militants. There is some dispute about whether or not they were being—they're using the hospital as a hideout, as the IDF has claimed, or whether they're being treated there. Um, uh, one of the—I think the two of the members were from one group and one was from another, but one what did allege that he was being treated there and the other two apparently were there. Sure. But I mean, we're agreed, right, that if the, if the militants are in the hospital, then that makes it a— legitimate target. And it is better for them to go, in, instead of just bombing the hospital or something, actually going in and, and, and specifically targeting the militants is the outcome we want. Well, if the options are bombing a hospital full of sick, innocent people, women and children and the like, uh, versus doing a targeted raid, I would agree that the latter is preferable. Um, but there are also rules about um, engaging in and warfare in those kind of hospital settings. And it also raises some questions about the ability to capture these people alive as, as opposed to uh, doing a, a more of a targeted uh, assassination. Um, there was no crossfire, um, so there, this was not a gunfight. Um, these were people that at least the—I think the Muslim— um, I think the bus, I don't want to misstate which group that these were belonging to. Palestinian. But, um, but one of the militant groups says were being treated there as opposed to— what Israel has been claiming, as it has in the past, bombed any number of hospitals uh, in Gaza, that they were being used as a hideout. And that—so the irony of you presenting that hypothetical is that it's not just a hypothetical. It is the rationale that's been presented as innumerable hospitals have been either destroyed or incapacitated over the course of over three months of war. And so it does raise some questions about if this is possible then why did we have those other instances, including a sniper attack through the window of a hospital, which did not kill a militant? Um, why were there so many hospitals that were bombed and incapacitated? And is this kind of behavior, um, dressing up in civilian clothing, et cetera, what are the implications of that, given that so much of what the IDF has said about why it's justified in shooting at people who present as civilians is because uh, Hamas dresses up as civilians. Hamas um, is in civilian clothing. Hamas uses all of these tactics, which they say are in violation of, uh, of war practice and which justifies IDF's um, killings, which have been described in some cases as indiscriminate. Yeah. I mean, I guess people can decide how they feel about it. I don't have any problem with them killing terrorists in this manner. It, in, in fact, I encourage it because it preserves human life. It, it, I mean, it, it's more—the reason they don't do it is because there's more risk, um, in theory, for the soldiers sent in, in case there would be a firefight. But I, too, have objected to the seemingly vast amount of bombing going on and the huge numbers of casualties. So more targeted raids that can de—that uh, de can take out um, terrorist fighters are, of course, better as they plan their 
try to figure out when this could ever possibly end. All right, stick around. We have more Rising for you right after this. Got some breaking news. Representative Cori Bush is under federal investigation for alleged misuse of security funds. Punchbowl News reports that the DOJ has subpoenaed the House Sergeant-at-Arms for documents relating to their investigation. Now, according to the New York Times, Bush hired her romantic partner, who is now her husband, to provide her with security services. According to previous reporting by Fox News, Bush's now husband has been paid more than $100,000 from her payroll. Since January 2022, these were marked as security payments and wage expenses. So this is interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. So the New York Times uh, reported that the the uh, Office of Congressional Ethics already investigated Ms. Ms. Uh, Cori Bush last year. The office voted to dismiss the allegations after concluding that her now husband, Courtney Merritt, had performed bona fide security work and did not appear to have been overpaid, and that Ms. Bush faced a level of threats that justified the work. Now it seems that the Justice Par Department is doing an additional investigation, and it's not clear of whether or not it's broader than the uh, Office of Congressional Ethics investigation that already validated this expenditure, uh, but we'll see. Yeah, to some degree it reminds me a little bit of the Fonnie Willis um, situation with the Georgia DA, um, you know, being alleged that there could be something improper here, someone who you're in a romantic relationship with receiving funds inappropriately. Now. Uh, you raised this when we started talking about it. It seems like she might have, they, they've recently gotten married. Yeah, just um, last year. So it's not, I don't actually know the timeline here. Did she fall in love with her security, a la the movie Bodyguard, right. or did she give a security job to uh, yeah. her, uh, someone she's But as soon as you're in a romantic in, relationship with the person, they should not be Although in I that think role. The, the difference with the Funny Willis situation seems to be primarily are you getting, are you, were you hired because you're qualified for the job? You know, did her husband do security, and is he being or now husband do security and was hired for security purposes? Uh, versus Fannie Willis, where the accusations are not just that he was hired, sure. but then that he paid for all of these trips and stuff um, that amounted to a kind of a kickback scheme. Um, so it's worth investigating. It is. It, it does seem interesting to me that. Apparently, there was some interest in the Congressional Ethics Office looking into seeing if this was okay. And what does it mean for Cori Bush if she already basically got the go-ahead from the Congressional but, uh, Ethics Office only to have um, prosecutors follow up in this way? Well, many um, conservatives are—and they did when this first became an issue during that probe or during that, look, that ethical look at from Congress—have um, you know, pointing to a kind of hypocrisy here in their view, because she was very outspoken on the whole defund the police thing and to be paying um, so much money. She's actually, at the chart I'm looking at, um, spent more than any other member of Congress. I, well, I think that was in the New York Times report. Uh, the chart I'm looking at actually has her one of the highest, but that's from 2021. I think the New York Times said she was spent more on personal security than any other representative uh, in the last year. Um, yeah, there was reporting in the New York Times uh, at some point last year that talked about how there had been agitation for larger congressional budgets for security, in large part because of increased security threats after um, 
uh, January 6th. Also, there was the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband that happened last year. Mm -hmm. um, and going back further, farther, there are obviously any number of attacks that have happened on Congress well, There's been doxings happening lately. Marjorie Taylor Greene was doxed. I think a Democrat was doxed as well. Um, Henry Cuellar was carjacked um, <laughs> about, like, a block from where I live in the city. That was yeah, so good. I would argue that um, the, the quest to defund the police has to do with the police targeting and abusing and violating the civil liberties of um, disproportionate poor and working-class people in the United States of America. And that is a basic civil liberties um, argument that anyone should want to adopt that has nothing to do with whether or not you have a credible threat against you, because they're one of the most high-profile uh, and famous politicians, people in the United States of America. And in the Con Congressional Ethics Office's investigation, I think it's important that one of the things that they weighed was whether or not there are, in fact, credible threats. If nobody's threatening you and you're spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in security, that obviously seems like an ethical violation. In a way, it doesn't. If you are being credibly threatened and you have real cause to have security, that's a, that's a well, little bit Well, but if you're different. paying it, again, as a kickback to your boyfriend or lover or something, that could be unethical, depending on whether the funds were are being appropriated for a false purpose, or it's like a it's the same thing with, again with Fonnie Wills that they were going on. Um, this was public money that then she was herself some getting back in some way because he was paying for the trips they were going on. Yeah. So the question so is, are you at. overpaid? Yeah. And were you hired because you're actually qualified to do the job? Which right. again is all of the things that the congressional office ethics office looked into. They found that he does do legitimate security, but the times got a bona fide security work, um, that he was not overpaid and that she did have these credible threats. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, I still think as soon as you're in a romantic relationship with your security guard, they should stop being your security guard. I think it, it's, it's a little dangerous. Um, I don't know. There's an argument that they're more likely to protect your life, um, <laughs> again, Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner style. But there's also an argument that it could interfere with their ability to right. look out for your safety um, and make hard decisions um, for your benefit. I don't know. I think it cuts kind of both ways. It is interesting to see the, the chart that I found the, from 2021 that you just alluded to. Um, there's some really big numbers for Raphael Warnock. He tops the list. I wonder if that's because he's an elect, it was an election year in such a hotly contested state with $605,000 being spent on campaign security expenses. Ted Cruz was second yeah. with 364000 that year. John Ossoff, again, the same congressional race as Warnock. Uh, Cory Bush is very much is an outlier in terms of being, kind of being a—she's the highest representative on the list yeah. and is, frankly, I, I think—well, she, she is known. I, I think she's one of the less—the other people on this list are more high-profile than her for the most—I mean, maybe that's not true across no, the board. No, I think but. it's true, because the next one is Eric Swalwell at 86. So Cory Bush spent— in 2021, 233,000. Swalwell, 86.5,000. He was the next highest rep. And then AOC is the third next highest rep at yeah. 83.2,000. So it's a little hard for me to imagine that AOC needs to spend less than Cori Bush, but th this also might have a to do with— A lot less. This was, and, yeah. it's, and it's like four times less. Yeah, but also might have to do with their personal finances. Cori Bush was famous to, as uh, for having come into Congress after having been sleeping in her car— um, she talked a lot about how when she first joined, she struggled to get housing in D.C. and in her district, which everyone has to do. Um, the commuting and the cost before she got her first paycheck, uh, finding clothes to wear that were uh, presentable. So I do wonder if some of these people have more personal funds that they can invest. Mm. Um, 
than others. Uh, I'm sure there's a, there's a lot going on here because I, I agree with you. Looking at this number, uh, looking at these numbers based purely off of their fame and some conjecture about the relationship between fame and how targeted you are doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, Liz Cheney is kind of up high on the list um, at fifty nine thousand, which kind of makes. I hope sense. Tim Burchett is spending more on security now that he's. Uh He's on this list, but it, I mean, it's not that it's down at thirty-seven thousand. But this was back in twenty twenty-one. Now that he's really after the UAP yeah. disclosures, yeah. You watch well, out. lol. And, I, and it, it does look like election year, like whether yeah. or not you're in election year, makes a big difference too. So we'll follow up on that as that story evolves. More rising right after this. No, in fact, that does it for us for today. There's not more rising after this. I mean, there is because you could go look at any of our other videos, and there could always be more rising. And we hope you. We just, uh, I hope you go through all our, our back video backlogs. You can, I, there, was a, there was a radars tab where you could go just watch all our radars. We haven't updated that in a while, but uh, maybe we'll get on that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content, and we will be back with fresh content tomorrow. Bye-bye.